So if you turn this on, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn there with me to Mark chapter 14, the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We've been in Mark since the fall of last year, and we are we are quickly drawing to a close. So just to give you just kind of an overview of where we are, I just go back just back to chapter 13. Last week we looked at chapter 13, which was uh, the abomination of desolation, the 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 um, the announcement by Jesus of things to come, things that would come in the disciples' lifetime, but also also things to come that will happen in our lifetime as as the church in the 21st century as well. And then you have this this pronouncement of these end times happening, and then Jesus uh, walks into uh, chapter or Mark walks into chapter 14 with us. Um, concerning this this plot to kill Jesus. So everything is kind of coming together for the religious leaders uh, as it concerns Jesus and their uh, eventual murder of him. And so they're plotting to kill him and they're walking along the way. And so we see in chapter 14 that Hunter kind of pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago of this beautiful thing that this woman does for Jesus which is preparing his body for burial. So we're already seeing this kind of foreshadowing of things to come in chapter four, in chapter 14. And then now today in our text, in verses 12 through 26, we'll see a further foreshadowing as well of things to come, where Jesus is using this event of the Passover to point to what is about to go down on the cross. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. And I'll read that for us. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds uh, and our ears to hear and behold these wonderful truths uh, 
that you have set out for us in the Gospel of Mark today. God, I pray that we would not miss uh, this message of the Gospel that we so desperately need day in and day out. So speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said earlier in, in our text this morning, we're entering into the ancient Jewish practice of celebrating the Passover. So it's, it's a practice that sets the people of God apart from all other people. Nobody else in the world is celebrating the Passover. Only the Jewish people. So it's a, it's a practice that clearly pointed to, to God's divine intervention on behalf of His people, on behalf of the Jewish people. But the unusual thing about this particular celebration of the Passover in our text, is its host. Because Jesus has this unique connection to the Passover's origin, but also to the Passover's ultimate fulfillment. So we'll see Jesus take the reins as the host of this Passover meal, and He'll walk His disciples through it. And at every step, He's revealing to them something about His person and work within the liturgy of the Passover celebration. But not only is He revealing to them about His person and work, He's also revealing to them something about themselves. And that's relevant to all of us here today. And He does this in three ways. First, He does it by drawing our attention to the Passover lamb. And then second, he does this by reminding us of why we still need a Passover lamb. And third, he does this by explaining to us, through the Lord's Supper, how Jesus is our Passover lamb. So we have the Passover lamb, why we still need a Passover lamb, and then how Jesus is our Passover lamb. So first, the Passover lamb. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and, and, and him doing this lets us know where we are in space-time history. This is a, a historic event. It happened in all of its reality uh, during the first century. And, and the reason why we want to see where this is placed in space-time history is so that we don't miss the gravity of what is happening here. So it being the time of Passover lets us know that we are really close to Jesus' impending death. We're right there on the cusp. So the words and actions that take place in the next 15 verses are significant to this event, significant to the death of Christ on the cross. Because it's, it's no coincidence that Jesus finds himself approaching his death during the Passover. They didn't come marching into Jerusalem and say, look at that, what a coincidence. Um, The Passover is happening. This this lines up perfectly for for everything that's about to go down. Now, this is all in God's good providence. So in bringing these two momentous events together, we see that in verses 12 through 16 there in chapter 14, that Jesus has made careful arrangements in order to share in this practice with his disciples. 
So we see that in, in these words that, that it might seem odd to you that Jesus is telling his disciples, look, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to prepare the Passover. You're going to go into the city. You're going to find a man who's carrying a water jar, which during that time it was unusual for a man to be carrying a water jar. That was typically done by women. So we know just from that fact alone that Jesus had already prepared this beforehand. That Jesus knew that he was going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples on the cusp of his death on the cross. So it's been said that that the cross being the central event of the New Testament, the Passover then is the central event of the Old Testament. The parallels are, you can't miss the parallels uh, between the Passover that happens 500 years prior and Jesus' now uh, impending death and resurrection. So it was so central, the Passover was so central to God's people that it was to be remembered every year at this particular time. And it's actually still remembered. It's still celebrated uh, up until this day by the Jewish people. And it typically happens around March in the springtime when the Passover is celebrated. And the way in which they remembered this great event was by acting it out. They would literally walk through uh, the events of, 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 of the Passover, of the Exodus. So families would gather together around the table, led by a host, and then they would walk through exactly what God led his people to do 500 years ago. Kind of, I guess something that's probably close to that, what we do now as, as, as uh, Protestants, as Christians, is, is, is during the Advent season. When we kind of walk through again remembering uh, how Jesus came to the world as a baby. And so this was a similar event in which they would uh, recognize what it was that God had done so many years before. So the way in which they would do this is they would recite the story from the book of Exodus. And somebody would read that and they would walk through that. They would sing the songs of the Hillel together, which was simply just Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And they would sing those together after every moment in the course of this meal. They would drink wine together. They would share in a meal together. And then they would just talk long into the night of the goodness of their God. Because they were remembering and celebrating over and over again what we now know as the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And it was significant. So in Exodus, just to give you a little bit of a summary of what is happening during that particular moment. In Exodus uh, chapters 7 through 10, God has already sent nine plagues upon the Egyptian people. So he's turned water to blood. So the water was undrinkable. He, he's sent a plague of frogs. He's sent a plague of gnats, which in my opinion would be one of the worst. But uh, he sends a, a plague of flies, the death of livestock, boils upon the skin of the Egyptians, hail from the sky, locusts to consume every bit of prosperity that comes from the crops that were in Egypt. And then num- number nine is just darkness can't even see your hand in front of your face. Now all of that is terrible. But it's the final plague being the absolute worst of all. 
And it's what the Passover centered around. The death of the firstborn. So what this plague entailed was every home in Egypt, including Jewish homes and Egyptian homes, would experience the death of their firstborn child. And this is how it's explained in Exodus chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, just as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Under the wrath of God's justice, no one was exempt. Just because you were, a, you were a Jew, just because you identified with the religion of Judaism did not keep you safe. It didn't keep you safe. If you, if you, if you hear it there in Exodus 11, he says, from, from the most powerful to the least powerful. So from the strongest to the weakest, from the richest to the poorest, from the most religious to the irreligious, even down to the livestock. No one was exempt from the wrath of God. And every one of them deserved it. The only way for your family to escape this wrath was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision, which he provides for them. And this is what it looks like. Slay a lamb. Slit its throat kill it, and then paint the blood of that lamb on your doorpost as a sign of faith that God would save you from this curse. So a brutal act, a bloody act. I've heard it said that when uh, a lamb is slain, I've never seen it happen in person, but I've heard about it happening, that it sounds like a baby crying. So this is not some just like cozy event that's happening. God is saying that brutality must happen in order for you to be saved from the ultimate brutality, which is God's wrath. Blood has to be shed in order for you to be saved. And if you look back at the history of God's people, in every instance that God saves his people, blood is shed. Every time. There is never a moment when God says, you know what, I'm going to relent here. You guys have been pretty good this time, and I'm going to relent. Every time, someone or something has to die in order for them to be saved. Now, if you walked in obedience to this act, God promises that death would pass over and you would be saved. Hence the name, the Passover. So to celebrate Passover was to acknowledge God's supernatural intervention in history. So every time it was rehearsed, every time the host walked his family and his guests through this event, they were acknowledging and saying, God is real. God had to intervene in order for his people to be saved. It had to happen. The Jews did not come up with this solution on their own. God gave it to them. 
and said, this is the only way that the death angel will pass over you. So the Jews knew that apart from God's provision of a sacrifice 500 years prior, they are still slaves. Even though the Bible tells us they outnumbered the Egyptians by a huge amount. They could have mounted an army and rebelled against the Egyptians in the snap of a finger. And they don't even think to do that. Because they know there is no way of escape unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes, they are still in their chains of slavery. And so this celebration reminds them of our second point, which is, why do we still need a Passover lamb? And verses 17 through 21 Shows us that. So you see there that Jesus has prepared a place for them to celebrate. He's made all of the arrangements. He's set up the the, the housing in which they will be at. He's got all of the food ready. He has all the cups of wine spread out before them as they go up into the upper room. And this place is prepared to enter into the activity of this meal. So the Passover had its own liturgy that the celebrants were, were led through during this time. And it, all, it, all, it was all framed around four cups of wine. And so Jesus leads his disciples through it. So after the, after the blessing that was, that was given over the entire celebration, the first cup of wine was received. And then the, the food was brought in of unleavened bread and bitter herbs and greens and stewed fruit and roast lamb. And this is the exact meal that the Israelites were told to eat before uh, they were to uh, be led out of Egypt. And according to the script, according to the liturgy in which uh, the Jewish people walk through, this is where someone, typically a child, would ask this question of, of the host. Why is this night, with its special customs and food, distinguished from all other nights? Why do we do this? Why do we celebrate this? And at this, the host was supposed to respond by recalling the biblical account of the Exodus. So he would say, this is why. And then he would walk them through the Exodus story, up until the point where God delivers his people. And of course, this would lead to obvious praise and celebration during the Passover, which then led to the second cup of wine being drunk. But that's not what Jesus does here. Instead, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to highlight one verse from Psalm 41. Psalm 41 gives an important detail concerning Jesus' march to the cross. That if this doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And this is what it says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Which gives echoes of, of Genesis chapter 3 where Jesus, uh, where the first gospel, uh, first hint of the gospel is proclaimed to us that, that, uh, that his head will be, uh, that his heel will be bruised, but, his head, but the head of the serpent will be crushed at the same time. So all of this is kind of floating through the minds of the participants in this meal right now. But, and this is where the story of God's redemption is supposed to be told. This is where the celebration is supposed to be happening. But instead of that, Jesus brings up an accusation 
of betrayal. And he puts it before his disciples. So according to one commentator, the major theme of Psalm 41, where Jesus lifts this verse, is the assurance of ultimate triumph over the author of Psalm 41's enemies. So in the verses following Psalm 41, 9, the author says this. He says, But you, O Lord, even though this person is betraying me, even though this person is lifting his heel against me to kill me, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. So he says that while he will be betrayed, even by one closest to him, he calls him a friend. The betrayal will not have the lasting outcome his enemies desire. Remember, the religious leaders, they want Jesus silenced. They want him gone. They believe he is a threat to the religious authority that they hold, but also the the governmental authority that that, uh, these other uh, folks, the Herodians, hold. And they want him gone. And they believe that if they can falsely accuse Jesus and put him on the cross and kill him and humiliate him, that all will be well. But Psalm 41 says, that's not going to happen. My enemies will not shout and triumph over me. But even though Jesus will die, he will also rise. Now, what's interesting to note here in Mark's gospel is that Judas is not mentioned by name yet. So we know we know now because we can look back at the scriptures that Judas is the betrayer. We see him kind of plotting his course throughout the gospel a little bit. But Mark does not mention him by name here. Um, And he doesn't really make his readers aware that Judas is actually the betrayer until verse 43 of this same chapter. And that's when he's, he kind of reveals to his readers, like, this was Judas. He was the betrayer. Whereas in, in Matthew and Luke's gospel account, they reveal that Judas is the betrayer, like, right away when you read their accounts. So this makes me wonder, just in Mark's writing style, if Mark is trying to show his readers something about themselves in the way the disciples respond. And when I say his readers, we're all included in that. This is written to us as well. So if you notice in verse 19, the disciples' first response to Jesus' accusation of betrayal is not to push themselves away from the table and say, I would never do that, Jesus. It cannot possibly be me. I would never do that. I would never betray you. Although Peter does do that a little bit later on in, in the text. But that's not their first response. Their first response is, To ask, is it I? And Mark tells us they go around the table. All of them ask the question, is it I? Am I the one that will betray you, Master? And Jesus doesn't offer any comfort to them. He, in my opinion, he kind of makes it worse for them. In in his response in verse 20, he says, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now at this point in the liturgy of the Passover, all of them have dipped their bread into the dish with Jesus. All of them have done this. And all of them 
believe they are capable of this kind of betrayal of their friend. Even after everything they've seen, everything they've done, everything that they have physically experienced, they still believe that if the price was right, they would do so. They would betray him. So I have to ask you the same question. If the price was right, would you do so? Would you betray Jesus? And I'll go ahead and answer that question for you before you push yourself away from the table and declare your innocence. The answer is yes. Yes, you would. We all would betray him. We all have betrayed him. That's why he goes to the cross. We are all his betrayers. Because the truth is, we are all more like Judas than we care to admit. We are way worse than we like to let on. You see it. We, you see it just in, our, in the way in which we uh, manipulate reality with our Instagram profiles and our Facebook posts and all sorts of things. We don't like to admit that we are the betrayer. That we are guilty. So we defend ourselves uh, in arguments with our spouse because we're right and you're wrong. We, we justify our angry outbursts towards our children and towards our friends because we have a right to that. We, we give ourselves a free pass when it comes to, to bitterness and unforgiveness with those who've hurt us, whether they've done it intentionally or unintentionally. We like to default to our own goodness rather than our depravity, don't we? So we rationalize our ungodly behavior and we, we blame it on our personality. That's just how I am. Or, or we blame it on our opinions. Well, I just have that opinion about things, so you need to give it, get over it. So I don't want us to miss the important lesson the disciples uh, almost accidentally teach us here. That apart from Christ, we are totally depraved individuals. All of us. So much so that you would betray Jesus at the drop of a hat. You don't even need the money that Judas received. You would do it for free. That's how wicked and depraved we are. Apart from him. So in verse 21, Jesus pronounces the judgment on this nameless betrayer that leaves us feeling the hopelessness of our condition. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. A statement that I'm sure sent shockwaves around the Passover table. But notice the first part of Jesus' statement in verse 21. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Again, Jesus is hinting at the prophecies of the Old Testament coming true about himself. So Jesus is saying here that all of this is in God's plan. That the treachery of Judas and even his impending death on a cross are within the context 
of God's design. That Jesus has to become the Passover lamb so that you and I can escape the death that we deserve. So that you and I can escape this wrath that God is going to place on his son. And in our final point, we see how Jesus is our Passover lamb in verses 22 through 25. And he demonstrates this through the institution of what we now know as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. So at this point in the liturgy of the Passover meal, the third cup of wine is served. And the third cup of wine represents redemption by God's divine power. So as the, as the cups of wine are being, are being poured, the, all of the participants knew what this cup of wine represented. That this, was, this represented God redeeming us by his divine power. And then through the supper, Jesus shows us that he is the redemption by God's divine power. And he does this by, instead of sticking with the script and using the words that typically came from Deuteronomy 26 that said, this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Those were the words that were meant to be said at this point in in the liturgy. But instead, Jesus shows them the bread. He lifts it up before them. And he says these words. Take, this is my body. Tim Keller is really helpful here in his comments on these words. He says, uh, quote, What Jesus is saying here is, This is the bread of my affliction. The bread of my suffering. Because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. End quote. So what Jesus has just done... In reciting these words, take this is my body, what he has just done is he has equated his life with the central event of the people of God. So Jesus is telling us that he is now the Passover lamb. So remember the words of John the Baptist in the beginning of the gospel. He doesn't say this in Mark's gospel, but in the other gospel, John the Baptist says these words to us, almost hinting at this event. When he says... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is only one thing that the people of God and the people gathered around them, hearing John the Baptist say the words, the the only thing that they can think of when they say the Lamb of God is a sacrifice. And that's what John is saying. Behold, the sacrifice is here. And this sacrifice is not only will rescue you from physical slavery, but will, will, but will take away the sin of the entire world. So the bread now takes on this new meaning. No longer is it only symbolic to the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, but it's now symbolic to the deliverance of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation out of their sin. And then in verse 23, he takes the fourth and final cup of the liturgy to tell us that not only will his body be broken, not only will he be beat beyond repair, physical repair, but his blood, his life, will be poured out as well. 
This fourth cup in the Passover meal represented God's promise of a renewed relationship with His people that is lifted from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Now remember back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 uh, where the fall has taken place. Our relationship with God at that moment was broken. It could not be repaired by Adam and Eve. They could not do anything to repair that relationship. And it remains broken because we inherit this sin from Adam. And so it remains broken because of our inherited sin. And the only way a relationship with God can be restored is via a new covenant. It's the only way. Which is exactly what Jesus institutes here in the Lord's Supper. The Supper represents what He is to accomplish at the cross. So as believers, we can say very practically, because we're about to share in the Lord's Supper together, we can say very practically, every time we come to the table, we are being reminded of the covenant renewal that we have with God only through Christ. So every time we we take of the bread and we take of, of the wine, we are reminded that it is God who has renewed the covenant for us through Christ. We've done nothing for that to take place. So this is our Passover lamb. This is His blood that is on our doorpost of our life. That when God looks down upon believers, He sees the blood of Christ and He passes over and forgives us. Isaiah 53 tells of the force of what this means to us as as believers. He says, The Lord has laid on Him, laid on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Iniquity meaning our sin. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. The Lord's Supper is something we celebrate often in the church, just globally. It's, it's celebrated all over the place. And, and it may be something that you've never really given much thought. Maybe you've, you've celebrated it all your life and you, and you just kind of looked upon it as just this ritual that you kind of walk through uh, on, you know, once a quarter and it just you know, the, the bread is there and the wine is there and it's just something we do. Um, we do it every Sunday at Christ the King Church. And the reason we do it every Sunday is because we don't want it to lose its significance in your life. This is a supper that was instituted by Jesus himself. And so we continue to practice this 2,000 plus years later. This same uh, act that Jesus instituted with his disciples right here in Mark 14. So essentially what we want to what we're kind of setting out to accomplish every Sunday through the Lord's Supper is to remind ourselves of our need. Every Sunday we are reminded of our brokenness. We are reminded of our sin. We are reminded that that we create distance between ourselves and God. And the only way in which that distance can be uh, lessened is through Christ. 
through his broken body and his poured out blood. Not just one time do we need to be reminded of that, but over and over and over again. Martin Luther talks to the, the reformer Martin Luther talks about how we need to have the gospel beat into our head every week. And I would say every day. And the Lord's Supper is a simple way in which we do that because the liturgy of the Lord's Supper frames our life around the gospel because it reminds us that just like the Jewish people in Egypt, we need God's divine intervention. And he gives us that through the sacrificial, substitutionary love of Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us.